this morning. Mr. Thiessen is here to deliver the message this morning. If you would welcome him to the front. <clears throat> All right, thank you. Let's grab a seat here. It's good to be back with you guys. I wanted to really just start before we begin our time in the Word. There was something I attended recently in Washington, D.C. I was with this guy here. You can see this is Dr. Stephen Lawson. He's kind of the pastor of preachers and preaching. And so I had about three days of just trying to figure out and understand what we call expository preaching. Now, I don't got three days to kind of unpack what all that is, but really it can simply be put into these simple three points. But I want to start with this because I wasn't here the first week, but it is a good reminder. And I won't take long on this, but just to say, when I talk to people, sometimes they'll say, well, what does your church do or what does your preacher, your pastor do? And I'll often use the term, well, we do preaching, but it's expository. And so really it's as simple as this, reading the text, the scripture. Now there's a lot I could say that I got in three days about what all goes into that, but it's simply, you'll see hopefully every week we're going to turn to the scripture. We're not going to some other source of knowledge. We're not going to spend the next 35, 40 minutes and just only hear my Husker football stories. You, you get a couple of those because I'm just a sports guy. But really, the point of this morning is we're going to read the text. And then secondly, we're going to, I'm going to try to explain the text, help us understand the text. And in fact, when you'll see below the word exposition is related to the word expose. The expository preacher's goal is to simply to expose the meaning of the Bible verse by verse. And we think verse by verse, book by book, is a good pattern. We've done this for many years now at Nebraska Christian when it comes to our chapel messages. And then finally, you see the third point, which is apply the text. And we can really get even more specific here in this gym than what you necessarily get in your church. So at my church, when my son preaches at Providence Bible Church, he realizes he's got people your age, he's got people my age, everything in between. He's got people that are teachers, people who are farmers, all kinds of variety of different occupations. So you can't always really zero in and go, here's an application for you. I would instead use the word a lot of times, implication. Implication. Now I can, I can zero in a little bit with you guys, and we're going to talk a little bit about how it even applies to sports. And so some of you who don't do sports, you might go, well, does this even apply to me? Well, absolutely, this message does. But just know that what we're trying to do is get you to see how you apply the Scripture to your life. And a good question to always ask when you're done listening to a Bible study, a lesson, a sermon is, so what? Now, not in an arrogant way of, well, so what? But really in a way, okay, so what does this and how does this change my life? How does this change the way I think and the way I behave? So that's, that's our goal. Every time we're here in chapel, this is what we're trying to accomplish. So this morning, I've titled the sermon, the chapel, Rabbit's Foot Faith. You can call it Rabbit's Foot Theology. Now, as I thought about this whole Rabbit's Foot thing, I, I don't even know. I doubt very much. There's a single person here today that's got a rabbit's foot in your pocket. In fact, you might even go, I don't even know what a rabbit's foot is. Maybe you've heard of a four-leaf clover, that sometimes people will take a rabbit's foot, a four-leaf clover, something that they think gives them power, 
gives them luck. And it, when I was younger, I know it seemed like a lot of kids had a rabbit's foot, which is kind of silly. And it's what I would call superstitious. Now, this is just, there are things in today's culture may not be a rabbit's foot, but there's other things that are superstitious. But if you look at church history, you'll see one of the reasons most of us in this room are Protestants is because during the time of the Reformation days with Martin Luther, one of the things he protested, again, where you get the word Protestant protest, is there was something going on in the Roman Catholic Church, actually many things that Martin Luther, the great theologian, complained about and said, this needs to change. One of those things was the way the Roman Catholic Church would treat what would be called relics or artifacts. And so they began to sell those and send them around. And by relic, what I mean is they would say, well, we've got the head of John the Baptist and we're going to send it around and you get to go see the head of John the Baptist. And even silly things like we've got the nails of one of the apostles or eventually the Roman Catholic Church would say we have these people we consider saints and it's the things they touch, the things they may have been around. And so the problem was they would take maybe, let's say, the nails. They'd say, well, we've got the nails from the, the cross of Christ. And so you come and you see the nails or you see the head or you see the, the toenails. Some of them were just absolutely ridiculous. But it would be the idea that you would get some power, we might call it. They would maybe call it grace. Like there would be something that would come. So you would, in a sense, pray or they would use the word venerate, which is honor. And so if you would come and you would honor the bones, the nails, or something they had touched or handled, there was some kind of grace that would come back to them. So that's very superstitious. It's one of the things Martin Luther said, no, 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 we protest. We, we can't. You're going to see this today's lesson. You can't manage and control God or box him up. But that's kind of the idea of the superstition. Now, I like to say it's gone away, but just a few years ago, even in the United States, the Roman Catholic Church had the bones of Mary that were circulating around and on tour in the United States. So this stuff, there are literally thousands and thousands of relics, and it's just sincerely wrong because that's the wrong door. That's not where you get grace. That's not where God gives you grace is through honoring a relic. So that's pretty silly. But as I thought about this, I want to say that as Protestants, we sometimes do some things that are very similar, and we can be very superstitious. And in fact, we can do the very same thing where we try to manage box God in, and we've got to be careful not to do that. Here's one of my football stories. These are two great coaches, Bobby Bowden and Tom Osborne. Uh, at the time when they were playing each other back in 94, it was a big bowl game. It's the Orange Bowl. There were two great Christian men. I played for Tom. I was asked by a fellowship of Christian athletes, would I go to the Orange Bowl? Would I interview Bobby, Tom, put together an article for SCA about the way these men coached, the way they thought. It was really exciting. Uh, part of the, the part that wasn't exciting is we lost to Florida State. That wasn't so fun, but the game was fun, and I enjoyed it. But I remember going to the chapels, both for Nebraska and for Florida State. <laughs> I'll never forget going to the Florida State Chapel. So it, it was like mandatory. Like, you go to the Husker one, and I don't know, about 20, 30 guys in there, and a lot of the guys didn't go, but smaller group. Go to Florida State, it's like everybody. I mean, it's 100 plus. It's the trainers. It's everybody. And so I was like, that's cool. That's great that Bobby kind of has, I don't know if he said you be here or else, but it was clear that that's a big thing. And so he had a chapel speaker who was a pastor at his church, 
And so it was, I remember his name was Pastor Clint. And he would give all the messages. In fact, the night before, he would get to get the players and pray with them. So I remember being in the hotel room, and he had a group of guys he prayed with. And he was a good guy. I mean, I really like him. I'm sure at his church, he was a guy that really had a powerful ministry. But here I was sitting with all these players. In fact, I was with my friend Stan Parker and some of the older guys know Stan. He was a former Husker like I was. And in fact, he still looked like he could still play a little bit of football. So he was down there with me because he's working with FCA. And so we're kind of sitting in the front row, kind of looking around, feeling a little bit weird that this is a Florida State and we're a couple Husker guys. But at the end of the message, I remember Pastor Clint said this. He goes, he goes guys, I want to tell you right now, look around. Look around next to you. Your teammate, he's not going to let you down. This guy's not going to, nobody's going to let you down in this room. Look at your coaches. Okay? Your coaches are not going to let you down tonight. And most importantly, God will not let us down tonight. We will win. And I just remember kind of going, whoa, that's a bit much, you know, for a couple of Husker guys kind of sitting in the front. And I kind of get, you can get a little carried away, right? I could probably do the same thing with Husker football. But I just remember kind of going, I, uh, I feel a little bit like he's got a prayer now that what if, what if Florida State doesn't win? Like, are you kind of doing something that you're telling God this is the way it is? But I get, I get it. There, it's kind of a pep talk, and I, I'm sure Coach Bowden might have even thought, well, it's a little bit much. We, we, we don't know that God's going to necessarily give us the victory just because we're the good guys. I still remember going out the side door when it was over, and the whole team got directly on the bus. So we were all forced out the side door, and there was this tunnel of Florida State fans, and they're just high-fiving and going crazy. And, and Stan and I had to kind of just go with the flow, and so we're just walking with the whole team. And it's just a weird moment where we wind up high-fiving Florida State fans, and I'm just like, okay, I, I, I better high-five that person, but this is just too, too strange, too awkward. But I thought about that over the years, and I thought, is God really, can we really pray for the things we want and always get them? And the answer is no. But sometimes we have a tendency to do that probably without even thinking about it. This morning, let's give you a little bit of setup what we're going to look at. You may have already talked about the ark just a little bit, but I want to make sure you get, because a lot of this is about the covenant of the ark. And, you know, if you've seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, the movie, it's not that far off. There are some things that are, you can look at that movie and kind of go, well, that's kind of what the Bible says about the ark. But it's important to know what the Bible actually says, not just what the movie says. Uh, it's gold-plated uh, wood, so it's a wood box, it's gold-plated. If you'd open it up and look inside, you'd see the Ten Commandments. It'd be pretty interesting if you poked your head in there. Uh, Aaron's rod. You've got a jar of manna. And the thing that probably maybe surprises some people is it's about a four-by-two box. So it's only four feet long, two feet wide. It's pretty, pretty small. And so this is the Ark, the covenant of the Ark. And you might also see that it'd be blood stained from the sacrifices, the animal sacrifices that were made on it. But this is, this is the ark that's in the temple. And it's, it's something that you, you got to kind of grasp today's lesson because the people of Israel, this is going to become like their rabbit's foot, like almost like if they stuck a rabbit's foot around, like they've taken the ark of the covenant of God and put it around their neck in a very superstitious type of way. And so, but important to know, that's the ark. Now, 
Believe it or not, we're going to cover chapter 4, 5, and 6. In order to get 1 Samuel through this semester, somebody had to do three chapters in one session. So I decided, might as well be me. I don't want to put that on some visitor that's trying to preach through that much. So there's one way to kind of do this. is I'm going to zero in on chapter 4. But just as a way to kind of introduce you to this section, I want to give you a summary of four, and that's what we're going to deal with and read. But I also want you to see what's going on in five and six. And because of the time limitation we've got this morning, you're going to need to read that on your own. But let's just look at this. I got a little lesson that goes, a point that goes with each of the summaries. So what we're going to see in 1 Samuel 4 is you can't manipulate God. The Israelites go to battle against the Philistines. They're defeated. The lost 4,000 soldiers. Then the Israelites bring the Ark of the Covenant to the battlefield, hoping it will bring them the victory. But they are again defeated, and the Ark is captured by the Philistines. So the Ark was not for the purpose of putting out on the battlefront and knocking down the enemy. That was not what it was designed for. So we're going we're gonna to zero in on this part of 1 Samuel 4, You'll see these three chapters do go together. In fact, it's a moment where we kind of pull back the focus and Samuel the prophet is kind of out of the picture just for a moment and he'll come back in later. But we're going to see, secondly, when we look at, we won't look at five and six, but just so you know where it's going, you also can't confine God. So summary of five is this. The Philistines capture the Ark of the Covenant they place it in the temple of their god, Dagon. However, each morning the statue of Dagon is found fallen face down before the ark, and the people of the city are afflicted with tumors. So you can't manipulate them. You cannot confine God. So you begin to see this pattern. And then finally in 6, what we see in 6 is this. You can't ignore him. You cannot ignore him. The Philistines plagued by tumors and death return the captured Ark of the Covenant to the Israelites by sending it on a cart pulled by two cows. The Ark is brought to the Israelite city of Beth Shemus. So you can see those are kind of the three points that are in these three chapters, and you begin to understand why these go together. Now, if you want, you can open your Bibles. I'm going to have this up on the screen to make it easy for some of you. Uh, maybe make some notes as we read through 1 Samuel chapter 4. It says, beginning in verse 1, And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistine, Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Apak. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the battlefield. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said this. They said, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. Now, you can see the yellow highlight there. And those are, those are just kind of my notes, like, you know, how hopefully with your Bibles, maybe you circle or underline something, maybe something you kind of go... Oh, that's kind of interesting. I'll just highlight that or mark that so that when you look back later, you kind of go, wonder why I circled that, wonder why I highlighted that. So even as we look at these first few verses, the Ebenezer, it's interesting. They encamped near Ebenezer. We're going to see this show up again in chapter 7. 
And that's where Samuel's actually going to make a pile of rocks called the Ebenezer. And that's going to be kind of the, a monument, a reminder to how God will help them later in chapter 7. In fact, it's called uh, the Stone of Help. So I just kind of highlighted that as I, I read ahead. I know that's what's coming. I think it's interesting, and I highlighted Israel's defeated before the Philistines. Uh, it's, it's kind of amazing, but there's been like 400 years that the Israelites were supposed to do something about the Philistines. Like they're there. They've got these poles to these false gods. And the Israelites, I mean, they've been asked, God's told them to kind of clean up things. And finally, I guess better late than never, here they are finally going into battle because, again, they were not to put up with these false gods. And they ask the right question here when you look at this because they're going, why, Lord? Why, why did we get defeated? That's a good question. I mean, when you lose a volleyball game, a basketball mat game, match, whatever it is, your coach is asking, you ask yourself for a football game, you go, why did we get beat? What happened? I mean, I'm up at the Minnesota game watching the Huskers get beat, and all you hear on the way out is, what happened? Why did we get beat? What, was that a bad call? Was it this that turned the game? It's just a good question. Now, the problem is they got the wrong answer. What they should, the answer should be, we got beat because we're unrepentant. We're not obedient to God. That's the simple answer. But instead, they do what I would call Operation Get the Ark. Operation Get the Ark. So that's the idea. Okay, why do you beat us? Well, we just don't have the Ark. We're going to bring the Ark in. If we get the Ark, if we use this, we're going to win. Let's go on with verse 4. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant, Lord of Hosts, who was enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark, the Covenant of God. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant, the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, what does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the Ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines, they were afraid. And they said, a God has come into camp. And they said, woe to us for nothing like this has happened before. So can you picture that? The Israelites, man, are shouting because it's like, man, we got to win. We got the victory. If you've ever been to a Husker game or maybe you were at that volleyball thing in, down in Lincoln recently, I mean, there was loud noises. There were shouts of joy. And you feel it at times when you win a point or you win a game and you just feel like, hey, we've got it. It's kind of like if your best player you thought was out for the game in the second half, and you thought, man, we've got to go against this really tough opponent. We're not going to make it. And at the last minute, you see that player is okay. He's ready for the second half, and you just be like, man, we got it. We've got the victory. And the Philistines, I mean, they got this moment where they're going, they, they know this God of Israel can mow them down. So, that, I mean, they are, for a moment, they're going, we're in trouble. Then we go to, Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? Now remember, they do acknowledge there's gods. Now they've got multiple gods, so it's not a big deal for them to say, hey, Israel, they got a god. But what they're thinking in their minds is they got a pretty powerful god. I don't, I don't know if our gods can kind of stand up or under this. 
And it says, these gods who struck the Egyptians with all sorts of plague in the wilderness. So they're going back to that time and they're going, man, I don't know. Do we want to we face this God? I mean, this doesn't look good for us. But here's what they do. So this whole thing, it backfires on the Israel people. So the Israelites are thinking, we got them. They're scared. They're just going to fold. Now all of a sudden, look what happens in verse 9. They say, take courage and be men. All Philistines, least you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. Again, a little like in sports where you're at halftime and your coach rallies you and it's just like, come on guys, come on ladies. We can do this. We can get this thing done. And so the other team in the locker room might be thinking, we got them. We got a 20 point lead. We got these guys. And all of a sudden this other team gets really hyped up and it's like, their only choice is if you're down by 20 or down by 25, your coach probably in basketball would say something like, you just go out and you just give it everything you got. You just go hard. Don't worry about the score. Just go get it. And, and so the team can look around and go, you know what? Let's just play loose. Let's just go after it. When I coached basketball here at Nebraska Christian, one of my favorite games was over at Cross County, and I'll never forget it. We had played really lousy coming off a holiday break, and we were down by either 18 or 20 points going into the fourth quarter. So you guys and you ladies, you know, if you're down by 20 and you only got a quarter to come back, that's impossible, right? Not, not even remotely a possibility. And the guys have really played poor. And I just said, guys, I, I don't have like the pep thing talk to tell you as we go back out in the fourth quarter. I just said, here's what we got to do. We just got to do a man trap and you trap wherever you can, whenever you can, and you just go crazy. I don't care if everybody fouls out. Our only chance is to go hard. You guys have not played with effort. Let's honor the Lord. Let's do our absolute best. And they just went out and I just remember it was just like we were just trapping and going crazy. And there was one quarter where it was like, if I could have bottled that and got him to do that every time we played, that would have been great. It doesn't always work that way. But that one quarter was fantastic. I remember we tied it right at the end of the fourth quarter with a, with a three-pointer that missed, but the kid that shot the three-pointer got fouled. And so he had to make three, three free throws to send us into overtime. And so it was all this exciting moment. And, of course, the opposing coach thought, you know, he didn't get fouled, and it was this moment, a lot of tension. We go into the overtime, and I actually wind up with every single ball handler and guard fouls out in about the first 30 seconds in overtime. And I got, I got my post. I remember I got, I got Nate Krug, my big tall guy out there, and I'm trying to get him to break the press. And I'm going, this, this is never going to work without all my guards. And somehow, somehow, <clears throat> we pull out the win. And the guys are just like, we, we did it. But they, for one quarter, they thought, I've got nothing to lose. And they rallied. And you really see, this is kind of what's going on with the Philistines. And they say this in verse 10, so they fought. And Israel's defeated, and they fled every man to his home. And there was a great slaughter for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. Wow, that's not like a little defeat, 30,000. Like, that's a big defeat. And then it says, and the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas died. And we know back in chapter 2, Eli knows this is coming. This is going to happen. They're going to they're gonna die. And so this is pretty amazing. Verse 12, a man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn with the dirt on his head. When he arrived, Eli was sitting on the seat by the road watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. 
And when the man came to the city, he told the news, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, what is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now, Eli was 98 years old. His eyes were set so he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, he said, how did it go, my son? He brought the news and answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, they're dead, and the ark of God's been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died. For the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel 40 years. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard the news of the ark of God was captured, that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth. Her pains came upon her. Just, just a couple things. I mainly wanted to maybe zero in on Eli. I mean, he's old, slow, doesn't see very well. Things haven't gone well. This is the end of the judges right here. So if we, as we've seen this period of the judges, and now we're going to see this time of the prophet and eventually the king, this is, this is a, a tremendous time in the history of Israel. But when you think about this, it's so crazy just to see him kind of fall back, broken neck, and he's done, he's out. Now here's the wrap-up. About the time of the death, the woman attending said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have born a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God has been captured because of their father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. You probably, I don't know if we got any Ichabods here today. It's kind of like naming your kid Hitler. Uh, it's something you don't do. Uh, but it's interesting when we think about Ichabod, it is this idea that the glory has departed, and this is true, but it's not for the reasons they think. It's not for the reasons they think. The glory had already gone. But here she is going, well, the glory's gone because we lost the ark. Like, we don't, we don't have that lucky charm, that rabbit's foot. So this is why God left. So she's got it. She's got it wrong. She doesn't understand the real reason the real reason they were defeated. She still doesn't get it. And it's silly. It's a little bit like saying, I've lost my car. I can't find my car, yet there's four keys for that car hanging up. It's that silly to think such a thing. Here's the main idea I want you to take down your notes. I really want you to process this and think about this. This is the overall main idea when you take chapters 4, 5, and 6. Both the Israelites and the Philistines learn this. If you, and that's, let me apply it to us, if you think for a moment you have God, quote, handled, think again. He will not be managed or manipulated by us, by you, by us. You cannot manage, you cannot manipulate God. That's, that's the idea you should see here with the Israelites. They had this all wrong. They had the wrong idea of what to do with the ark, how to use the ark, they're unrepentant. They're disobedient. And here's the thing. You see this time and time again, this pattern in the Old Testament. I took some guys who had never been through the Bible before all the way through. They read a little bit of New Testament, took them through the Old Testament. I remember the guys kept saying, 
Gordon, I can't believe this. These, these guys in the Old Testament, they keep this doing the same thing where they're disobedient and God punishes them, does not bless them. And then they learn their lesson. And then after they learn their lesson, they repeat the same thing again and again. Here's a book that came out 2000. My friend Greg Gilbert, he spoke for us. He reviewed this book called A Prayer of Jabez. Here's what he says, because this sort of thing still goes on again today. He says this, the thrust of the book is that Jabez prayer cannot fail to get results. The first sentence of the preface, preface says this, Dear reader, I want to teach you to pray a daring prayer that God always answers. Here's what Greg says, what a ridiculous, unbiblical sentence. And it remains unqualified through the whole book. Christians need to recover the idea that faith is not defined as believing that God will give us what we want if we just believe hard enough. Now, believe it or not, when this came out in 2000, this has become one of the top 10 best-selling books among Christians. It's sold over 10 million copies. It's what I would call a fad. You know, a fad something that's there one minute and gone the next minute. Thankfully, it's kind of disappeared. But it took two verses out of 1 Chronicles, somewhat obscure verses, and took them out of context. And this book became this bestseller. I remember I was working for Fellowship of Christian Athletes, and I get this box back in 2000, and there's a letter in there that says, read this book, The Prayer of Jabez, and if you will pray this exact and recite this verse every day, multiple times, it will increase your territories and make you successful. I still got that letter somewhere because I thought, what? What is going on with this? That is not, that doesn't seem right. That doesn't make any sense. But that's the thing that grabbed not just a few of my friends with FCA, and there were some of them like me that just kind of said, seems silly. I don't think that's the way. I don't think we can manage. I don't think we can manipulate God. I think that's out of context. But there were more than 10 million copies sold. So this idea still exists today, this idea that we can manage God. It's a picture I took last year at one of the Husker games. And this is something I noticed with prayer. And uh, I noticed this about maybe six, seven, eight years ago. And the players, before the game would start, I would look over, and the first time I noticed, a bunch of players ran to the goal line, and they would begin to kneel down. Not, not all at the same time. There'd be kind of maybe a couple different waves of guys that would just kind of come. And some guys would take a knee. Some guys wouldn't. Some guy, But they were praying. And I remember when I first saw it, I thought, well, that's, that's kind of a cool thing, you know. And I said something to Coach Brown afterwards. I said, hey, what's, what's the deal there? And I don't really know where this thing got started or what school it got started. And I remember Ron said, you know, I guess it's okay. He said, but here's the problem, Gordon. He said, you saw a lot of guys do that, right? I said, yeah. We've got a lot of believers this year on the team. I don't know if we got that many. And what he implied and what we talked about was a lot of the guys did this almost like a rabbit's foot, almost like, well, if I go pray before the game starts, God's going to allow us to win the game, and I'll do really good. And so the motivation was wrong. And again, what you see here when we deal with the Philistines, the Israelites, it's always about the person's heart. So I can see Chubba Purdy. He's number six in the picture kneeling down. I've got to know Chubba through some of our camps that we do. I know Chubba's a strong believer, and I kind of I understand. I know him so there's definitely guys in the picture and guys that do it every week that have the right motivation, but there's always some guys that maybe don't. 
I've got one former player from three years ago, Lane McCallum, and he played for the Huskers somewhat recently. And I asked Lane about this the other day. I said, well, you were on the team that would do this sort of thing. What do you think of it? And he says, oh, it's, it's okay. But he says, you know, Gordon, I would ask those guys that roll out there praying later, hey, would you want to come to Bible study? Their answer, no thanks. Church, no thanks. So it's definitely sort of a rabbit's foot. But again, think about the heart. Here's my last point in my last story. But this is a different kind of a prayer. And this is what I want you to write in your notes. One thing to get out of this morning, God is worthy, not useful. Emblazon that on your brain. God is worthy, not useful. You will sing, some of you at your churches, you'll sing, Thou Art Worthy. That might be a hymn that you sing. When you begin singing, Thou Art Useful, leave that church. But that's kind of what we've done today in so many ways. We begin to pray, Thou Art Useful, and God is to give us what we want. This prayer took place in 1986. And I show you this to you just to say the hearts of these guys I know were right and proper. There were four Nebraska players, four Oklahoma Sooners in the picture. And the way this came about was this is in the day when Nebraska was really good in football. Oklahoma was. I think Oklahoma is still probably pretty good. But there's a big rivalry. And the night before, what oftentimes with college what college teams do is they'll go to the movies and just kind of relax the night before before the big game. And so here we are, it's downtown Lincoln, and my friend Stan Parker, who you can see in the picture, who's praying, he says, you see the Nebraska bus pulls up for this movie, and right behind it pulls up the Oklahoma bus. So you got Oklahoma guys getting out, going to the same movie, you know, so they're all kind of looking each other over like, oh, they're, they're gonna, we're going to beat these guys. You know, they're giving them the, some guy's giving them the stink eye, and like, oh, we got you guys. And Stan recognizes another player for OU. His name was uh, Spencer Tillman, the running back, really good for OU. And Stan went up to Spencer and said, hey, you're a Christian brother, right? And Spencer said, yeah, how about you? Well, I am too. So instead of watching whatever the movie was, Stan and Spencer spend the time out in the lobby praying together, talking about their faith, sharing each other's tests. That's what they do instead of the movie. And somewhere in the conversation, they go, wouldn't it, wouldn't it be God honoring if maybe a few of us just prayed before the game. What do you think of that? Now, to this point, to my best of my knowledge, there had never been a public prayer in sports. Like today, you see it all the time, mostly post-game, occasionally pre-game. But really, it was not a thing until I would point back at this moment where this became where the first time you see it where it's public. But as they talked, it was it's kind of funny because you know, they say, well, uh, Stan said, well, why don't you get four of your guys? I'll get four of my guys. And maybe before the game starts, we'll just go down the end zone. We'll just pray that God be honored. And it wasn't about we're going to beat you. It was about God's worthy. We're thankful to be here. Let's pray for our safety. God's in control of every single circumstance. And so I remember when I asked Stan this, I said, well, you, you did ask Coach Osborne permission, right? Who was his coach at the time. And Stan's like, no, we kind of forgot about that. So the people that are there, even Coach Osborne said he's kind of looking over and they decided to do it right before kickoff. It just kind of, that's just what they said. Well, we can get together just before kickoff and we can get the four and four. And Tom would say he's looking over there going, what are those guys doing? Like we're getting ready to kick off. And the people in the stands were like, 
looking at this going, I think, I think there's going to be a fight. You know, what's going to happen? Like, what's, something's getting thrown down. Like, nobody ever seen this. And they kneel right here, and they pray. And I just thought, it's, it's the hearts of the players. And that picture, somebody took this photograph, and it went all over the place. And there was a time when, you know, people would see this, and it was a testimony to these Christian players. And I would go back again. It's about the heart. So even as we close this morning, just ask yourself this. Are you worshiping God with all your heart? Or do you need to be repentant? Or do you even know the gospel? Because again, you're going to hear it many times, but it's going to come back to the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, that he died for your sin, that if you turn away from your sin, receive him as Christ, you have an eternity with him. That's the really good news. It's not something, it's like a rabbit's foot that you can rub and like, well, gee, I'm a Nebraska Christian. Everybody seems like they're a Christian, so I'll just kind of go with the flow and let's just pray we can just beat these guys. Really, you should be asking yourself, am, am I doing everything I can to worship the living God and let his will be done, whatever that is? And remember, he's involved in every single circumstance. So if Friday night or Thursday night, you turn an ankle, you get behind, maybe you get you don't play well, he's still in control. He still has something to teach you. It's not, it's not the other way around. It's not the other way around. And so oftentimes we want to do it the other way. Just remember, it's not that he's useful. It's that God is worthy. Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful for this morning, for these students. Even as we dig into 1 Samuel and look at the Old Testament and try to, try to see even what's going on here where they could not manipulate, they could not confine, they could not control. They couldn't. And they had to learn this lesson over and over. We see it again in the Old Testament. And I'm just reminded we battle this same notion that we want things our way. Help us to understand you are not our servant. You are not our butler. We serve you to your ends. And we know our good is for your glory as we pray in alignment with your will, not our will. So I do pray for them as they take the sports fields, as they're in the classroom, whatever they do, that they always be reminded that God is worthy of your praise and worship, and he is not useful like a tool. Thank you, Lord, for this time this morning. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.